The Guardian. When faced with insults and sexist abuse, Apple's Siri was programmed to respond, I'd blush if I could. This evasive and flirty comeback is typical of what we've come to expect of smart assistants. They're deferential, subservient and affable. According to a report published by the UN last year, these anthropomorphized female devices help to entrench harmful gender biases, and they're in need of a feminist reboot. In Tuesday's episode, I asked why virtual assistants are so often gendered as female. If you missed that, I'd really recommend going back and taking a listen. Today, we're picking up the conversation where we left off, looking at the sexualization of AI and robots and what this means for how we treat them. Because these products can't speak back, they're not programmed to desist any kind of abusive behaviour, or weren't initially anyway. They also then lend themselves to more gender and sex-based abuse. I'm Alex Hearn, The Guardian's UK technology editor, and this is Science Weekly. Just as a reminder, I was joined by Helen Hester, an Associate Professor of Media and Communication at the University of West London, and Jenny Kennedy, a Research Fellow at RMIT University, Melbourne. Jenny, one issue you report in the book is that that female-gendered AI and robots tend to suffer more abuse, and that also often takes a sexual form. Can you Can you tell me about that? Yes, the subservience of these kinds of devices lend themselves both to the fantasy partner in terms of the object and sex relations, both in regards to the sex robots and the kind of fantasies that people are reporting to have with more basic products within the home. But also because these products can't speak back, they're not programmed to desist any kind of abusive behaviour or have, weren't initially anyway. They also then lend themselves to more gender and sex-based abuse. So to have that kind of abuse almost normalised within the home, we see is problematic. The, the gendering of digital assistants, of course, has reportedly led to virtual assistants receiving like a barrage of sort of jokey sexual propositions. And some have, have referred to that as being like sexual harassment or like sexual abuse. But I think given the underdeveloped state of any kind of um, uh, quote unquote AIs involved, I think that really risks kind of cheapening some of these terms and also excessively stigmatising user behaviours that that kind of may be playful and curious rather than predatory or malicious. I, I understand if somebody's saying, oh, well, you know, Siri, Siri, what are you wearing? Like on the one hand, that's, you know, it's a bit eye-rolly and it does seem to replicate, um, you know, problematic behaviours um, away from the technology. But I mean, if, if, as I've been kind of arguing here, it's galling enough that the work performed by Alexa, for example, may be more visible as work, uh, in terms of both its perceived utility and the the perceived underlying effort of the the design team, it would be even more irritating if harassment and abuse ended up being more visible when received by machines than when <laughs> received by actual women, right? But I think it's unlikely that misogynistic abuse will lend itself to a technical fix, and you know a program of change far wider than individual devices would would be necessary to make any advances on on that front. 
And so on a similar note, one of the stories that, that we reported last year was that Apple had specifically rewritten aspects of Siri to make it not engage, deflect, and only if it couldn't avoid it, inform people about questions asked of feminism and Me Too. This was a change that Apple put in in June 2018 that was revealed in, in 2019. Does that, does that desire to, to keep Siri demure rather than strident, I suppose, does that point to everything we're saying here? Should voice assistants be proud feminists? It comes back to what we're talking about, this idea of the the current programmed personalities draw very much on this subservient female. And we're saying, well, why is it that they do? Why not have them be strident? Why not have an AI that says, well, not if you're going to shout at me and call me names? One other topic that you bring up, Jenny, is is ecofeminism, um, which which is is sort of nicely newsworthy right now for for this topic because as we're recording this, Amazon has just launched a, a whole new suite of of Alexa powered Echo devices and has launched a, a new Alexa energy use dashboard. Is promising that the Echo devices will be made with 100% post consumer recycled fabric, aluminium, and plastic, and and have new low power modes. What, what is ecofeminism and how does it apply to this area? One of ecofeminism's main arguments is that by drawing on the world's finite resources, we are putting a lot of the strain on mostly women, but also children. So poorer conditions and lower wages for women, and also that women often bear the consequences of a impaired ecological state. By introducing smart wife technologies, we are both minimizing and devaluing or not valuing the kinds of work that has typically been feminized, um, but also that it is having an impact on the finite resources of our world. Like the ideal. The ideal ecological standpoint against any kind of smart home technology is that we shouldn't have it because it's detrimental to our environment. But we appreciate that we're, we're, it's, it's embedded in our society. It's impossible to literally shut down the smart home industry or any kind of technology industry. But what we have to do is start paying attention more to the kinds of products that we're buying the materials that are being used for them, um, being concerned with things like planned obsolescence and being aware that to continue to consume in the way that we have been consuming is detrimental to our long-term environment. But the people who suffer most by climate change essentially is mostly women and children. I think this is such an important issue in the context of the discussion that we've been having about about work here, really, because um, so we've been we've been concentrating on invisibilized and underrecognized forms of work, and I think we do really need to extend this to the work that makes the, the very devices and systems we've been talking about possible. And you know, as Jenny points out, this is work that's destructive; it's um, toxic to ecosystems and to 
to the humans which kind of sit within these ecosystems and it's resource extractive and, and it's also it's work that is carcinogenic you know so work in the electronics industry like semiconductor manufacture for example um, and work in e-waste disposal um, a very a very sort of damaging to the to the bodies and the people that perform it this is work in which people are treated as disposable assets for capital as in uh, resource mining and it really underlies everything that we've been talking about today you know that the smart wife may circumvent the domestic servant problem for affluent progressives but it is inseparable from these wider dynamics of exploitation and the unevenly distributed effects of of a global system in which people are separated from the means of subsistence and forced to sell their labor to survive but you know as as i guess that comment suggests as jenny was saying you can't just say well these technologies are bad and having sort of um, diagnosed the problem assume that that well, that's done now, then, <laughs> because it's this massive interlinked global system that that's the problem, and one tiny intervention is it in it isn't going to cre- lead to the whole kind of house of cards collapsing. But thankfully, I mean, Jenny, you you do offer some solutions that lie between ignore it and end capitalism. What are some of your pitches for for rebooting these technologies for deproblematizing the smart wife? Thanks, Alex. Yep, we do end the book on what we hope is a positive note. Um, we make nine proposals. Ideas we would like to see smart homes and smart wife technologies adopt. So one of those, I guess many of those relate to the kinds of things that we've been talking about, and that's thinking about like recognizing the um the very limited framing of femininity that these devices currently offer and thinking about who these devices are for or who else can benefit from the services of these devices are they are they suitable for everybody within the homes that they're entering into rather than being designed only for i guess a intended male user to think about also the ways in which we explain these kinds of devices, conflating the way that humans can be abused against the ways that machines or robots can be abused, also gets muddied by the types of wording that we use when we talk about technology failing. For example, we tend to anthropomorphize technology in its fa- in, when, in describing its failures and our frustrations with it. And I think if we resist some of that anthropomorphizing and refer more to the issue with perhaps the hardware or the software or the humans behind the design of the product, then we start unpacking and getting away from some of these gender social dynamics. Something I find really interesting about some of these proposals is that they do actually overlap with the very traditional and very male-dominated tech press's criticisms of these devices. For instance, the idea that you should rethink how they fit in the family is a criticism that's been laid at the feet of the Echo devices since day one. Even now, I'm set up on our iTunes family sharing account as the head of the family. Yeah, there's been a lot of critiques of that, haven't there? This idea of like family accounts and the expectations and ideas that get embedded within them it's about the the sharing of digital content and the desire to try and limit the way that that can be shared so 
the idea that, you know, one of the, the main services that sort of smart home technologies are kind of offering relates to consumerism. So to buying things like um, access to media products. And then the issue is around who you can share that with and trying to limit that as much as possible. So the family becomes a very fixed unit with very little flexibility. There does need to be more work in terms of how households actually negotiate access to these technologies. You know, who, who's in control of what at what time? How is that negotiated aside from being like, OK, well, daddy's the head of the house. So, you know, he, he gets to decide, which is just such an inaccurate reflection of even how the dynamics within relatively conventional looking nuclear families work. Jenny gave her ideas as to what we would change to these services to make them better. Helen, what would your your big ask be for changing the way these devices are made or at least the way we relate to them? Well, I am super grateful that that Jenny has done the work of kind of articulating a series of sort of positive theses or sort of propositions for the future of these kinds of technologies. Because I am very much not a designer. I'm very much in the the fine academic tradition of criticizing and offering no helpful comments whatsoever. Uh, (laughs) So from my point of view, I think think it's interesting in terms of thinking about something sort of of positive about the way the technologies are now. I do think it's interesting to consider the ways in which technologies make gendered cultural dynamics, which are often sort of naturalized or implicit, uh, visible in new ways. So I think it it's relatively easy to question how and why technologies come to be gendered in particular ways, sort of the, the assumptions that underpin them, given that this is usually a matter of deliberate design. So there is nothing uh, natural, there's nothing sort of spontaneously occurring about these things. And so technogender is obviously decision driven and equally obviously it could be otherwise. I think when we're we're confronted with any form of anthropomorphized tech, we are confronted with particular questions, like the ones that we've been asking together today. What attitudes might this express about imagined end-user preferences? How do existing ideas about gender, race and class come to be embodied within this system? And and how might these technologies uh, feed back into cultural ideas? Of course, we may well choose to ignore these questions, or perhaps they they may simply not occur to us. But I'd argue that that new tech has the potential to provoke collective reflection about identity simply by virtue of its being new, of its being less familiar. So it has yet to be normalised. So we're very conscious of the fact that it could be otherwise. To my mind, thinking about femininity as something that we, we, we choose to program into our devices sometimes um, also prompts interesting questions about the way we experience gender in the wider social world. So like the, the gender of the virtual assistant is neither neutral nor inevitable, but it's the byproduct of specific histories and specific expectations. And that's how I I personally view many of the operations of gender beyond the machine. So in that sense, it would be actually having discussions with users 
around the design of these technologies, actually doing something to democratize the process of the way that they are designed, and particularly thinking about groups who don't have, who haven't traditionally had access to the design cultures around these technologies, um, might respond to the way they're currently being built and assembled. Helen Hester and Jenny Kennedy, thank you so much for joining me. Smart Wives is available now from MIT Press. I hope after listening to this discussion, you race out and buy it. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much, Alex. I should also say that in response to the criticism of how Apple's Siri voice assistant handles sensitive topics such as feminism and the Me Too movement, responding in one of three ways, don't engage, deflect, and finally inform, Apple told me at the time, Siri is a digital assistant designed to help users get things done. The team works hard to ensure Siri responses are relevant to all customers. Our approach is to be factual with inclusive responses rather than offer opinions. You can let us know what you think by sending us an email at scienceweekly@theguardian.com. We'll be back next week. See you then. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.